Well, I want to ask that you would keep these truths that we've just read centered in your minds and in your hearts as we approach today's sermon text, the call to love our enemies, the call to even be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. And in view of just those two items, I don't know about you, but my response is, oh, how I need a Savior. So let's pray to Him now and ask for help. Though we confess that we have not done this, we struggle, many of us, to even love those in our family, for, for, for us to love those that we do love but on a consistent basis. And Lord, the, the call to be perfect, to be complete in our actions and our behavior before You, as You are perfect, Father, we confess that we have sinned and we continue to sin and fall short of Your glory. Oh, how desperate we are, God, for Your salvation. And yet You give it to us. In Christ, Thank you for the grace that you've just lavished upon us, that we should be called sons and daughters of God, that we, your enemies, that we, children of wrath, should have a seat at your table, Heavenly Father. It's just beyond us to, to plumb the depths of your love. So, so give us hearts of gratitude, we ask this morning, and help us to order our very lives around the truth of your word, by the power of your Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me invite you to take your Bibles, please, and open them to Luke chapter 10. We'll be picking up where we left off in verse 25, Luke 10, 25. And if you're using the church Bible in the seat back in front of you, that's on page 816. Luke 10, beginning in verse 25. This is a passage of Scripture that many of us may be very familiar with. We've come to affectionately refer to this as the parable of the Good Samaritan. We've reached this point in Jesus' life and ministry where Dr. Luke is telling us an account of uh, an exchange between Jesus and one of the experts in the law, uh, and embedded in that account is this parable of the Good Samaritan. Let's read God's Word together, and then I'll work our, we'll, we'll work our way together through it. Luke 10, beginning in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, And when he saw him, 
he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three, do you think, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is God's holy, inspired, infallible word to us, his people. So, Friendship Community Church, what if I were to tell you that the Thomases were fishing at a friend's house last night? It may not surprise some of you. And if I were to tell you that as we were fishing, our oldest son, Asher, caught a whopper of a bass, definitely his personal best. We've actually got a picture here for you. That's a pretty nice one, right? I mean, you can see his hand, but you kind of scale how big that thing is. That's a fat lunker. Anyway, if we were to tell you that, we would be telling you the truth. I'd be totally correct in giving you that information. But that would also be a woefully incomplete picture of what happened last night. Because when Asher pulled that beautiful largemouth bass into the kayak with him, it flopped around on the bottom of the boat, and somehow, I have no idea how this happened, somehow that bass jabbed the hook that was in his mouth into my son's leg. For those of you uh, who will fish on occasion, you'll notice that um, some of these lures have three-pronged hooks. This one does two. You can count two from the picture. The third one is completely embedded uh, in my son's leg. Turns out sometimes a barbed hook can get so lodged in your flesh that even the experts at Children's Hospital in Pittsburgh have a hard time extracting it. So uh, Asher and I spent the evening in Pittsburgh and returned home at 2 a.m. this morning. So forgive me if I seem a bit scattered today. It's been a long night. But uh, why am I telling you that story? I'm not telling you that story because I want you to feel sorry for us. Actually, I think this has earned some like man points with Asher. <laughs> as if he needed a bigger head. But uh, there's an interesting dynamic at play in the text before us today. You see, there's a truth that's embedded within a bigger truth, within the parable of a good Samaritan. See how I did that with the word embedded? And, And if we were to focus on the truth of the story itself that Jesus tells, the parable itself, at the expense of the bigger picture... It'd kind of be like telling Asher's fishing story without the part about our late-night trip to Children's Hospital. You see, it's true that Asher caught a really big fish, but there is a whole lot more to that story. And sometimes I think as we read the parable of the prodigal son, we're guilty of fixing on part of the truth, which is genuinely true from the mouth of Jesus, and fail to see the forest through the trees. So let's, 
Let's take it from the top and we'll work our way through together. At, at the outset of this parable, we need to, we must take note of the question that frames the entire account. So look with me, if you will, maybe put your finger to focus on verse 25 of Luke chapter 10. I want us to consider this framing question and the one who's asking the question here in verse 25. Let's start with the who. We read that this man approaching Jesus is a lawyer. A lawyer. Did that strike anybody as somewhat odd? Because we use that word in 21st century English to mean a particular thing. Well, that word lawyer in a first century Jewish context would mean something a little bit different. A lawyer is simply an expert in the law. Only in a theocracy, someone who was an expert in the law was not only somebody with political power, and this individual would have had great power and influence in this time, but also, he would have been an expert in the Old Testament law, which governed all of how God's people lived their lives. So said another way, this guy was not just a lawyer in charge of legal matters. He was also a theologian and a consummately trained one to boot. This guy is an expert in his Bible. And he lobs a massive question here at the teacher Jesus, in this case. Here's the question. Look at verse 25. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Going right for the jugular, I guess. I mean, that's, a, that's a big question. Take note of that question. We dare not forget it as we're trying to parse through this parable that Jesus tells. Look at Jesus' response to this man and his question here in verse 26. How does Jesus respond to this huge question? Well, simple. He appeals to Scripture, doesn't he? Look at verse 26. Jesus asks simply, what is written in the law? Again, what's he mean by law? He's hearkening back to the Old Testament. He's hearkening back to the, the Scriptures. Jesus is appealing to his authoritative source for truth, which is what, friends? Huh, it's the Bible. Go figure. Now, does that have any application for us today? Of course it does. God the Son takes on flesh and presumes to walk this dirty, filthy sod. And when people are asking him questions about the nature of life and death and eternity, where does he point them? To the Word of God. This is... Our source still, Friendship Community Church, for all life and living. All life and living. The lawyer, of course, answers. He's ready. He's an expert, after all, in this very same Old Testament law. And so he gives a textbook perfect answer. Look at verse 27. The lawyer's answer is twofold. Actually, he's quoting from two Old Testament, uh, excuse me, Old Testament texts verbatim. First, he's citing the Shema from Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. One God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. He's citing 
his Old Testament, and very rightfully so, Deuteronomy 6. And then he continues, love the Lord your God, he says, with everything you've got, heart, soul, mind, strength. And then he cites Leviticus 19.18. You've got to love your neighbor that way too. You see, it's not enough to merely love in a vertical way, your love to, to, to the Lord, your God, but you must also love horizontally. These two things sum up the law and the prophets. Gee, I feel like we've heard that before. We just read it a couple minutes ago, didn't we? Jesus said the same thing. Bingo. All right? I mean, this is a, this is a perfect answer. A perfect textbook answer from the teacher of the law. He's not wrong. Now look at Jesus' response to him in verse 28. Don't get this twisted up now over Jesus' response. Jesus starts by saying, you're correct, this is, this is right. This is the right way to look at your Old Testament. And then he says something very curious to those of us who have a framework for the gospel. He says, do this and you will live. Live how? Well, he's asking him about eternal life. You do this, Jesus says, and that's the way to eternal life. Now, that command from Jesus to this teacher of the law, this expert lawyer, do this, is in, I think this is helpful to know, it's in the present continuous tense in the Greek language that the Bible was originally written in, and the New Testament part of it, anyway. What Jesus is saying then is, if you want to achieve eternal life by obeying the law, you're going to have to obey it perfectly, continuously, ongoingly. Do these things and keep doing these things. And if you manage to always only ever keep doing these things, you'll get eternal life. Go knock yourself out. But this expert in the law, is actually not interested in Jesus' answer or where he's driving. Look at verse 29. He's got a different agenda. What's he, what's he trying to do? He's, he's trying, Scripture says, to justify himself. This, by the way, is how we know that the guy posing the question to Jesus is speaking from a heart posture that is not sincere. This guy's not really trying to drill down on the nature of eternal life and how to have it. This guy's trying to test Jesus, verse 25, right? He's trying to test Jesus, and he's trying to justify himself. He's trying to flex his theological muscles. So he lobs an additional question at Jesus. Well then, Jesus, who exactly is my neighbor? Get you on a technicality. The answer he's expecting, whatever it might be, is an exclusive one in his mind. You see, in the mind of a Jew, the understanding of a good Jew in this time and day, your neighbor was your fellow Israelite, anyone within the covenant community of faith, a child of Abraham. That was your neighbor. You had no responsibility toward anybody outside the covenant community of God. There were some rabbis that even taught uh, that, that rather than helping someone who was a Gentile out of the ditch, you might as just, well, go ahead and shove them in the ditch, and you'd be doing your, your duty. 
Who's your neighbor? Well, certainly not those pagan Gentiles. Look at Jesus' answer. Jesus answers this question, who is my neighbor with this well-known parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan, as we often call it? Jesus said, there was a man who was going down the road from Jerusalem, the capital, Jerusalem, always up. You always go up to Jerusalem. So if he's in Jerusalem and he's going to Jericho, he's going down. You know that direction. You're always going down from that peak, from the mountain of Zion to Jericho. By the way, if you've been to Israel, you know this is quite a steep descent. He's descending about 3,000 feet from Jerusalem, the mountain of God, to, uh, to Jericho in about 17 miles. That's how long this road would have been at that time. 3,000 feet descent. It was not only a steep descent, it was a dangerous one. This was a long, dangerous, windy road, just perfect, wouldn't you know, for bands of robbers, excuse me, to attack and to ambush. As a matter of fact, that's what this road between Jerusalem and Jericho was known for. In ancient times, people would refer to this notoriously dangerous road as the bloody way. And that's the way this story unfolds, doesn't it? Verse 31, he's beaten and ambushed, and and who should come along, Jesus tells, as he's weaving this parable. He's throwing a spiritual truth along an earthly reality. Who should come along but a priest? Now, this guy's a professional from the tribe of Levi, not just the tribe of Levi, from the family of Aaron. This guy is pedigreed. This guy is an expert in the law. His job is to teach it to others and to administer before the Lord in the temple at Jerusalem. If anybody should have known the right answer to how to live before God, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, it's this guy. It's this priest. And yet when he sees this guy fighting for life on the side of the road, he just sort of skirts by on the other side, doesn't he? So too, a a Levite, in in like manner, a Levite comes by, same situation, different chapter. This Levite walks by on the other side of the road. Now, some of you might be thinking, wait, what's the difference? I thought a priest was a Levite. Well, not exactly. Everyone who was a priest at this time had to be born of the tribe of Levi. So everybody who was a priest was a Levite, but not all Levites were priests, you see? It's like you kind of learn in math class, all, well, how do you say, all, all, rect, all squares are rectangles, but not all rectangles are squares, if that makes sense. If it doesn't, just forget I said that. <laughs> everybody who was a priest was not only a Levite, but also a member of the family of Aaron, And these Levites would have also been in professional ministry, supporting these Levites, the priests, doing these same duties. Jesus' point is clear. Here are the professionals. They should know what they're doing. They should know their Bibles backwards and forwards. And yet when they see a man broken and bloody in a ditch, they're content just to keep on trekking. 
Now, there has been a lot of ink spilled as to why these men might have passed by the other way. Keep in mind, this is a parable. These are not real men. This might have been a real scenario at some point in time, but Jesus is telling a a story, an earthly story with a heavenly intent. So, So why might these guys hypothetically have done something like this? Well, for one, it's possible that these guys could have mistook this man for dead, in which case he would have been ceremonially unclean, and it would have been a big faux pas for these priests and Levites to touch or even let their shadow fall upon this dead body. Perhaps they thought he's dead or dying. I don't want to wind up ceremonial and unclean. I could t- I'd be a, a week of time. I'm, I'm coming down from Jerusalem to Jericho. I'm going to have to turn around and go back to Jerusalem, away from my family for another week, to go through the purification rituals. Perhaps that's what they're thinking. Perhaps they're thinking, man, I've been warned about this road. Maybe this is a trap, right? Maybe this is a setup. Maybe this guy's faking it in the ditch, and his his buddies are kind of over here, and when I go over to help this guy out, they're going to pounce on me. Or even if it's not a setup, you didn't dally on this road. You didn't dilly-dally here. They're, they're, they're deciding, I better quickly make my way away before these guys come back and find me, and I wind up in the same predicament. Maybe it's they were trying to play it safe. Maybe it's that they were trying to avoid being ceremonially unclean. Maybe they just were trying to hurry home. Jesus doesn't tell us exactly why these guys passed by on the other side. There could have been a myriad of reasons why people could have, upon hearing this parable from Jesus, thought, yeah, I guess, I guess I can understand why they do that. But whatever their reason ultimately might have been, the reason for their inaction, rest assured, friends, it was a very bad one. There's a guy who's dying on the side of a road, made in God's image. How calloused do you have to be There's no ambulance on the way, no backup call to just walk by and pretend you never saw. Let's stop for a moment and just ask the basic application question. God's Word tells us even in the New Testament, he who knows the good he ought to do and does not do it, James 4, sins. Sinning is not just before the Lord a matter of thou shalt, thou shalt not. There are sins of commission, things that you do against the word or the ways of the Lord, but there's also sins of omission, things that you should do that you fail to do. And this is a glaring example of a sin of omission. Now, we ought to often, as we're thinking through how to apply the Bible in our everyday lives, we ought to often be careful of overcorrecting. Is what we're saying then that any time ever a need is thrust before you, you are duty-bound before the Lord to see it through to completion? I don't think that's what Jesus is teaching here. Note, this is not an example of someone blindly throwing himself at 
any and every need in the universe that should be laid before him. Sadly, as a pastor, I can speak from experience when I say there are many people who make a habit of trying to, what we call, work the system. You know, there's people who, I guess they don't get out the phone book, that's like an old thing to do, but they get on Google and they've got a a list of churches in Washington and they just call, they just make the rounds and they've got a new sob story every time. Is this what Jesus is talking about? Is Jesus talking about dropping everything that you're doing to help those who are preying on the generosity of others? That's not what Jesus is talking about in this parable. This guy's dying in a ditch. He's not trying to milk the system. This is a real life or death situation. He needs help or he's a goner. Another quick practical note before we rush, rush past Sometimes, friends, maybe many times in our lives, we too may find ourselves in situations that we never asked for. Isn't that true? We like to pretend that we're in control, but the truth is there's a lot of times when we don't get to pick where we are or what we encounter in life. Sometimes, friends, you're going to find yourself knee-deep in the middle of a situation you never asked to be there. So, what do we do when we perhaps find ourselves in a situation like that? Well, I think there's a lot of faithful ways that you might respond to that for the sake of time. I'll just give you one simple thing by way of application that we could perhaps do in a moment like that. (laughs) And the answer is pray. Now, in a matter of great urgency, you're not going to say, time out. Let me go into my prayer closet. Let me just take a time to, you know, just just recite these scriptures over and over and over again. I'm just going to pray through all that. No, no. Sometimes in the moment, you've got to offer up before the Lord who understands what's been affectionately called as a shotgun prayer. I love that title, a shotgun prayer. If our goal, friends, is in all things to be followers of Jesus and act in accordance to the new life that he's given us, then it, the question is not really, do we have a head full of Bible knowledge, but rather, are we able to apply that Bible knowledge when we're walking through a situation in real life, in real time. That's the difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is knowing stuff. Wisdom is applying that stuff that you know in real life, in real time. So we should pray things like, I think, in the heat of a moment, Lord, help. Give me wisdom. I don't know how many times a day I'm just praying that in my head in the middle of a conversation. Help, God, I don't have the wisdom I need. Give me wisdom by the power of your Spirit. Father, you see what's happening here. Here's another one. You see what's happening here. Please protect me as I prepare to walk into the middle of this situation. I don't know what I'm going to be getting into. But you do, Father. Would you protect? Shotgun prayers. It's a simple place to start. Okay, let's, let's keep working through the text. We'll pick it up in verse 33. 
the shock factor comes in the middle of Jesus' parable after explaining the sin of omission of the priest and the Levite when Jesus gets to our third character, enter Samaritan, stage right. Let's read it one more time, verses 33 and 35. Look at the grace in this part of the passage. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. You know, that's a characteristic of God Himself. The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You know, it's the Lord's compassion. That's the impulse for His love to you and to me. He had compassion, this Samaritan. He went to the man. Maybe it was a dangerous situation. He pressed on. He took that risk. It was the right thing to do. He, he went to him. He bound up his wounds. He poured on oil and wine. There was perhaps some antiseptic qualities there. And, and, uh, and, and the oil would have been a soothing balm. He's, he's doing the best he can to perform first aid is what he's doing. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn to take care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii. This would have probably gotten about two weeks' worth of care for this man. And although he couldn't stay for the whole thing, he says to the innkeeper, you take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I'm good for it. You see, I'm going to come back. And I will repay whatever's due. Now, it's probably about this time that the listeners to Jesus' parable would be proceeding to pick their jaws up off the floor. We've already talked a little bit about Samaritans recently here in Luke 9 and 10. The Samaritans and the Jews who were like oil and water. The Samaritans and the Jews who seethed with hatred, who just pulsated with animosity toward one another. These lines that were drawn between them ran deep. You notice, just um, a little clue here in verse 37, that when Jesus is asking this expert in the law, who had mercy? Who's really the good neighbor? He can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. He can't even say that word. What's he say? I suppose the one who had mercy on him. Which guy, Jesus asked, proved to be the neighbor? Which guy? You're asking me, who's my neighbor? Well, I'm going to tell you what it means to be a neighbor. It's... The half-breed Samaritan. The enemy ends up the hero in Jesus' parable. The priest and the Levite, what, what they should have done for their countrymen, this enemy, this vile Samaritan does. And look at his radical display of compassion, of generosity, of self-sacrifice, even spending his own resources lavishly on his enemy. Jesus asks in verse 36 the painfully obvious question. So, uh, which of these three guys proved to be the neighbor? That's what we're defining, right? We're defining neighbor. 
And once again, the teacher in the law has the right answer, the one who showed him mercy. The one who showed him mercy. Jesus lands this parable by redefining this guy's concept of what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. And it is a total do-over, right? I mean, I like how one commentator puts it. He says it's like Jesus is totally redrawing the boundaries of his neighborhood. Who's a neighbor? Well, if your neighbor even includes your most vile, abhorred enemies, then the Bible is here presuming to redraw the boundaries of our neighborhood around the entire human race. Anyone created in the image of God who is in need meets the biblical qualifications for neighborship, if that's a word. The question is not here in this parable, does this person qualify as my neighbor, but rather, what kind of a neighbor will I be? And this is Jesus' charge at the end. He says to him, go. Go and do likewise. This radical, enemy-loving, sacrificial love is Jesus' standard for loving your neighbor. So, how's that going for you, Mr. Expert in Law? Are you really, Mr. Lawyer, theologian, are you really holding to this level of neighbor love? Well, the answer is clear, and it's no. Of course he wasn't holding to this kind of neighbor love. And friends, neither are you. Neither am I. This Friendship Community Church is the problem with ending the parable of the Good Samaritan right here. Why? Isn't this where Jesus ends the parable of the Good Samaritan? You can't end it here because doing so would be to completely ignore the entire point of the passage. We've got to see Jesus' lesson on how to be a right neighbor through the lens of how the whole passage was set up. Remember that pesky question back in verse 25? Look back at the beginning of the passage. This is the context for everything that follows. The question that sets the stage for the parable of the prodigal... No, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Remember that question? He asks, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's right. What was the answer? He got it right. He knew the right information. The answer was, well, you got to love the Lord your God with everything you got, with all your heart and soul, with everything in you, and you got to keep loving Him with everything you have. And in like manner, you got to love your neighbor as yourself. Who's my neighbor? <laughs> Let me tell you. And 
And this guy wants to justify himself. This guy wants to apply limits to the the law of God so that he can presume, at least in his own mind and heart, to think that he's pleasing the Lord. To think that he really can earn eternal life. But Jesus' parable makes it clear that this kind of neighbor love is entirely out of this man's reach. This guy doesn't even have a category for this type of neighbor love. So what's that mean for the question that frames the whole passage? What's that mean about eternal life? Well, it's quite simple, I think. If the way to get there, if the way to to get to eternal life is to love God completely and to love your neighbor this way, well, then apparently this guy and all the rest of us, for that matter, have missed the mark. We have failed the love test. Don't you see, friends, that the parable of the Good Samaritan is not, it's not just about altruistic generosity and self-sacrificial neighbor love. It is about that, but it's about so much more. It's a parable exposing the fact that we haven't been loving this way, that we have failed to attain the standard of God's law, and therefore we are doomed. Don't you see it? We can't do this. We haven't done this. Here's how Dale Ralph Davis puts it. I think this is pure gold. He says, let's be sure we pick up the emphasis of Jesus here. We can miss it because we tend to get all sentimental over the Good Samaritan. What a nice thing he did. What a brave thing. What a generous thing. And we get all filled with gooey thoughts over neighborliness. And we miss what Jesus is saying by this parable to his questioner. You do not have life. We forget that the story was not first of all told to give us an example to follow, but to expose our lovelessness and to lead us to repentance. The Good Samaritan does not preach to us our duty, but reveals to us that we have not met that duty. Well, that's heavy. What do we do with that? Well, I think we look to the text and we see what we're left with. And the only thing we're left with is the man who is telling the parable. We're left with Jesus, who I will remind you, has set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem, where he knows, where he's already told us he's going to carry a cross and die. He's the one who's going into hostile territory, isn't he? He is the one who is going to rescue this helpless, doomed, pitiful guy in the ditch. By the way, that's you. That's me. 
You're not the good Samaritan. He is. You're the, you're the half-dead guy in the ditch, helpless, needing a Savior. That's who you are. You see? He goes to great lengths and pays the ultimate expense to care for and to save his enemy. And he promises, isn't this good? He even promises to come back. And the entire expense for his restoration, for his salvation, is paid by the Good Samaritan. What a Savior. You know, it's been said that Jesus is the Good Samaritan. I'll agree, but it's probably an insufficient statement. Jesus is not just the good one. He is the greater Samaritan. What this good Samaritan did in Jesus' story was as chaff compared to the weight of the suffering, compared to the pain and the debt that he would assume in his body on the tree to rescue us. From certain death. So, if we're going to go and do likewise, verse 38, it's not because we're going to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps and go become the Good Samaritan. It's because Jesus has become the Good Samaritan. Jesus is this one he's, to- he's telling the story about. And now all we're trying to do by the power of His Spirit is to follow in His footsteps. Not because that gets us eternal life, but because out of thankfulness and gratitude, the rest of our lives are spent following after Him. And growing up into His image and likeness. It is true. It's not wrong to say that the parable of the Good Samaritan teaches us how to be a good neighbor. That is the truth. But you can't stop there. It's the gospel. Which is why we're going to close here by singing... An old, old hymn. We often sing this at Easter time. I love this one. It starts off with this line. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? How is that possible? That He for me who caused all His pain would do this? How, how is it that He did it all, that He paid the price, and I get grafted into eternity? How? That's the gospel. Amazing love. How can it be that Thou, my God, shouldst die for me? He is worthy of our worship. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, forgive us for clamoring for your job. Forgive us for inserting ourselves into the hero's seat, into the driver's seat, 
forgive us for our sin and rebellion and pride. And help us to see your glorious work on the cross of Calvary is all we need. You are the one who at great expense to yourself has ransomed us from sin and death. And we say, thank you. Amazing love, Christ. We can't fathom how it could be that you, our God, should die for me. Give us grateful hearts. Shape us into your image by the power of your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and sing one more time?